So for the message today, we've been in 1 Peter for a few weeks now. We're going to continue in 1 Peter, continue in this series. And today we're going to be for our main passage in chapter 4. So you can pull out your Bibles and flip there to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at specifically verses 12 through 19. And what we're going to see here as the central theme here is that of how we are to respond to persecution. So Peter here is writing to these Christians, as we talked about in prior sermons, these Christians in northern Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey, the northern regions. Those are the people he's writing to. And he's writing to them, understanding their context, the reality of what's going on, and they are facing persecution at that time. And so he doesn't want to just sort of ignore that and gloss over it, but recognizing that's a reality, a big part of what's going on in their lives, he speaks to that. And so he does that here in chapter 4, and, and something that would naturally be on their minds as they're facing this persecution from those around them, sort of, how do we respond? How are we to operate? And so Peter addresses this and and lays out this roadmap of how we, as Christians, are to respond to persecution. And you might look at this and say, well, okay, you know, that was a time back when there was significant persecution on the church, and we live in America now, and persecution's not so tough here in the U.S. We get a little bit mocked as Christians, we get belittled, we get insulted, we certainly know that, but we have it pretty good compared to the rest of the world, or compared to other periods in history and time when the church has faced severe persecution. But I don't want us to sort of look at it and say, okay, so I can just sort of tune out here, I probably don't have to listen, my situation's just different than, than these Christians here in northern Turkey, roughly 2,000 years ago. But I'd say, rather, it's not different. First of all, we do still face persecution, even if it is in smaller ways being mocked and insulted, that is still persecution. But I'd say it's also increasing bit by bit in our country and sort of ramping up, and it's no longer sort of isolated just to being insulted and mocking, being mocked, that sort of a thing. But, but it's, it's intensifying, and that's sort of the trend. You can sort of see the writing on the wall and where things are headed bit by bit in our country, and it's becoming more and more serious. Certainly, if you think of the globe, all across the globe in our, our day and age today, persecution is just everywhere all across the globe, very intense in many places. But I'd say here it is still increasing. That's just a reality. And uh, you don't have to go too far looking at the news or headlines. Some of it might be covered up in, in certain news outlets and whatnot where they may not choose to report on such things. But if you sort of dig and look for it, you'll see the persecution. You'll see it on the rise, whether it's, and this is sort of old news, it's been around for, for a number of years now, probably even a, a decade or so. But whether it's you're a baker and you're a Christian, and as a result, you, you won't make cakes for, for gay weddings. You won't do that. You're just, that goes against what you believe. And so you say, I'm not going to do that. And the reality is there are people who've lost their businesses. They've been sued. They've lost their businesses, their livelihoods as a result. And, and that's persecution. And there were plenty of other, in those cases, bakeries that, that that couple, that gay couple could have gone to and that would have made a cake. But they specifically targeted that Christian baker and his business and said, we want to take them down and teach them a lesson. They're targeted. They're persecuted. And many have sort of lost everything from a financial perspective as a result. But it doesn't end there. There are nurses that have been pressured into making a decision of either losing their job or 
uh, helping and assisting in an abortion. These are, are Christian nurses who, by law, even are allowed to object and say, uh, on, by ma- because of matters of faith, I, I'm not obligated to participate, even if this hospital performs abortions. Uh, I, I'm sort of a conscientious objector to that and, and will not be forced to participate in that. So legally, they're actually protected, but that doesn't mean hospitals regard the law. But there have been plenty of instances of nurses being told, you have to assist in this abortion or you're fired. And, and some have caved, unfortunately, in that regard, but others have said, fine, fire me, and they've, they've lost their jobs as a result. Again, intensifying persecution. Uh, even I think of, of vaccine mandates, and, and that's fine, whatever you, your view is on, on vaccines and whether you have it or not, but, but these mandates in many cases, whether they're sort of legal mandates, government, whether it's you work for the military and you have to get this or whatever, I know some of the mandates have been pulled back, or maybe it's just sort of your company, it's not the government, but it's your company that's forcing these vaccines. Uh, legally, they should be providing religious exemptions. That sort of is the case with all sorts of laws. If you have uh, a, a religious reason why, why you object to something, you're allowed to, to have a pass in that regard, and it can't be mandated. And yet, in many cases, there are no religious exemptions that are be, being given for the vaccine. And the reality is, for, for the COVID vaccine, and there are plenty of others, not all of them, but they're either made or tested using uh, aborted fetal cells. And so many Christians will say, I, I just don't feel comfortable with that. I don't support abortion. And these are being created, fabricated, the, these vaccines, or they're being tested on these, these aborted baby parts and cells. And I, I'm not okay with that. And so I object to this vaccine. Again, others might take a different stance and say, I oppose abortion, but, but if that's already happened and you're going to use it for research, then okay, maybe some might be okay with that. Whatever your view is, but nonetheless, there's certainly a case to be made for many Christians saying, I'm just not okay with this. And on religious grounds, because aborted cells are being used in this case, I'm just not comfortable with it. But those religious exemptions often aren't present at all, or even if they on paper say they allow them, there are zero exemptions that are actually granted. In effect, it's not allowed. And again, that's just uh, for many, whether it's companies or government saying, your Christian faith, it's just sort of not acceptable in our society today. We don't, we don't value your view against abortion and, and, and any scientific research that would result from those aborted parts and cells. Uh, we just don't accept that, and so we're not going to give you any sort of exemption. Again, we're being pushed to the margins more and more. Persecution is intensifying. Uh, there are even cases of, of employees, and not just sort of like the low guy in the company, but even high up executives and companies who've been fired for no reason other than holding certain Christian views and values, often related to things like homosexuality or transgenderism and, and holding a biblical view. And the company saying, sorry, even though you're some high up executive, that goes contrary to our uh, corporate values, and they're fired just because of what they believe in. Again, we see this persecution ramping up. Uh, we see it even, I think, of a case in, in Canada. It's not just this one case. I know this isn't the U.S., but it's not so far away, just north of us uh, in, in a country that's awfully similar to ours. Uh, there was a case, and there were, there were many more of this, but this is one that was sort of in the news a bit, of a Polish pastor who was there in Canada, and all he wanted to do through the pandemic was just hold worship services, right? That seems pretty essential and core and, and an expression of religious freedom. We, we believe in God, and we worship him, and we're called to gather and worship on Sundays, and that's all he wanted to do was just gather and worship, and they arrested him and tossed him in prison for doing that. Uh, and you might think that's Canada, you know, maybe not quite as free as the U.S., but even here in the U.S., just a few towns over in Worcester, remember, if you go all the way back to 2020, and this is March through May, 
church services were banned. In effect, that was the reality. Uh, maybe the government would, wouldn't put it that way, but any sort of public gathering that they deemed non-essential uh, was banned. You weren't allowed to gather. Church services couldn't happen for about two months. And there was a church in Worcester that said, yeah, we're, we're, we're just going to gather. That's what we're called to do. We're going to do it. And every week when they gathered, they had a substantial fine slapped on the church for doing that. I, I haven't sort of followed how that all played out in the end. Did they sort of sue and how, how did it go? I don't know. But bottom line, it's not just sort of some church in Canada and pastor and he was arrested. Even here in our backyard, a few towns over, we have people who live in Worcester. And that was a reality for a church there. They just want to do what God has called them to do and gather and worship. And yet society said, nope, that's not acceptable. Uh, sorry, we're banning that because of this pandemic and you're not allowed to do that. That's deemed non-essential. And again, you might say, well, they're just trying to do what they think is best, even if it was a bad decision, the government. But there was clearly all across the country intentional targeting of, of the Christian faith. I mean, you could go to a liquor store in, the, in Massachusetts and in many states, and that was deemed essential because you need to buy your alcohol. But apparently your religious freedom and that right and gathering to worship God Almighty, that, that's not essential but your alcohol is. And so you see that there was sort of a biased way in applying things, and Christians were certainly targeted. This is just, I'm throwing out all sorts of examples, but just to illustrate the reality that, you know, we're not living in America of, you know, 50, 60, whatever years ago. It, it's a new country, in a sense. It's a new culture, and Christianity is being pushed more and more to the margins. We're being marginalized, and Christians are experiencing bit by bit. It, it's sort of like not all at once, instantaneous, though it has ramped up the last couple of years, but ever increasingly Christians are facing more and more persecution. Not to say that, that we've reached the point of we're like Christians in North Korea or other parts where sort of our lives are on the line just for openly declaring we're Christians. We still have it pretty good here, but this is increasing. And so I want us to realize this is relevant to our context. I don't want us to tune this out and say, this is just for people experiencing serious, heavy, severe persecution. So I can sort of like tune out, I'll get a good nap in or whatever during the sermon. No, this is relevant for us as we still experience persecution, even in small ways, but it's growing, it's increasing. It's something we need to have uh, both at the forefront of our minds, but also in the back of our minds as things increase, persecution increases, and be ready uh, to live out all that we're going to talk about in regard to how we're to respond to persecution. So now, sort of setting the context, our world, and, and Peter, and sort of with the context he's writing to, I want to get into scripture here. Uh, but before I get to our main passage in chapter 4, I, I want to speak a little bit to sort of Peter's mindset here as he's uh, writing chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And if we're to think of our response to persecution, probably the, the first thing that would jump to the forefront of our minds in regard to how should we respond to persecution would be, well, of course, we have to just stand firm in the faith. We have to persevere in the faith through that persecution to the very end. That would sort of be like number one chief, most important fundamental response we should have to stand firm in the faith. And yet you look at chapter 4 here, verses 12 through 19, and that's not explicitly stated. It's not like, oh, Peter got it wrong or something. This is scripture. Of course, it's right. It's true. It's in inerrant. Uh, but rather, the reason Peter doesn't mention it here is because he's, it's already implied in a sense. It's already in his mind that they're already doing this. Uh, as he's writing this, they've been experiencing persecution for, for some period of time. And he understands and knows that they are faithfully bearing up under that, persevering in the faith through that, standing firm in their faith. So he knows they're already doing that. He, it, that sort of is assumed. And now he's kind of writing to them in the sense of, here are the next steps that you're to take in regard to how you're to respond to persecution. These are the further ways 
you're already doing that one chief, most important, obvious response that, that you're to have to persecution, to remain firm in the faith, not fall away from the Lord. You're already doing that, but now here are the further ways in which you're to respond to persecution. So it's not like he left something out because he just doesn't understand and he's missing it. Uh, he didn't leave it out because he's, he's missing it. He just knows they're already doing it, and that's why he doesn't explicitly state it, and he's just building from there. But actually, he does bother to mention it in the next chapter, even though it's not our, our main passage. I will turn there, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. So even though in, in chapter 4, he, he knows they're already doing this, so it's just sort of assumed here and not explicitly stated. As he gets to chapter 5 and he's giving his, his sort of final words, closing exhortations, he does want to make sure, I just want to make sure, I, I'll, I'll state it explicitly. I know you're doing it. I sort of took it for granted and assumed it in chapter 4 because I know you're doing it well, but I just want to bother to make mention of it explicitly. And so he does do this in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and I want to read it for us before we get to our main passage. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the devil is, is, is out there and he is seeking to attack the church and undermine the church. He doesn't want to see people saved. He wants to see people perish for all of eternity. And so what he would love is to see Christians fall away from the faith and, and not wind up being saved. Now we know, right, theologically, once we come to saving faith in Christ, uh, God sustains us in that faith to the very end. Peter, in fact, even talks about that in chapter one. If you go back a few sermons, a few chapters, you'll remember we talked about that. But just sort of, it's still nonetheless, even though we know God sustains us in saving faith to the very end, nonetheless, what the devil would love to see happen is Christians fall away from the faith and perish. And so even though it's sort of, uh, you know, he has no hope of success in this endeavor, nonetheless, it's what he would love to see happen and he seeks to do, even though, right, it's not going to take place. We will persist in the faith, those of us who have saving faith. So he wants to attack. He wants to see Christians fall away, even though that's not really possible. He wants to see them fall away from the faith and perish. And how is he seeking to accomplish this? By bringing persecution. This is what Peter's saying here. He's bringing this persecution uh, against the church. And in fact, not just against the church here, but as we read here, he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's saying, hey, you guys aren't the only Christians, you Christians in northern Turkey. You're not the only ones experiencing this persecution across the world. There are Christians all over the place who are facing much the same thing. But this is the devil's attack. This is his tactic. He wants to see, again, even though it's not truly possible, he wants to see Christians fall away from the faith. And so he brings this persecution against the church. And we're to resist this attack, right? We're to stand firm, resist this attack. And how do we resist the attack? We're told by standing firm in our faith. Resist him firm in your faith. This is how we resist this persecution attack of the devil, how we're to respond to this persecution. We are to stand firm in the faith. We're to persevere in the faith to the very end, not falling away, remaining true to the Lord. So here we get it stated explicitly. This is our first, most important, most critical response to persecution, and it's to stand firm in our faith, to persevere to the very end and not fall away. So now sort of establishing that, that first most important response we're to have, we'll turn to chapter four, our main passage. And again, here, that was sort of assumed because they're already doing it. And now we get sort of the next steps further ways we are to respond to persecution. So we have here 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I'll read it. We'll kind of pick it apart verse by verse and, and go through and do the teaching. And then, as always, of course, apply what we've learned. So chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So this is the first response we get in, in this passage, the second one that we're speaking of, again, that first most important one of, of standing firm in the faith. And now this is our second one we're going to look at, the first in this passage, and it's don't be surprised by this persecution. That's what he's saying. It, all too often what can be our, our, our response that we have, our natural response, it shouldn't be the response we have, but often we're sort of shocked by persecution. Like, wh why would this happen? Why would this come upon me? Uh, you know, and we're sort of perplexed by it. And he's saying, don't, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? If we think about it, if the one we follow, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, if he was uh, hated, if he was abused and mistreated and persecuted, even to the point of being crucified, well, if we're his followers, should we expect any different treatment? We shouldn't. We should expect much the same thing. Just as he was abused and mistreated and hated, we should expect to be uh, abused, mistreated, hated, persecuted. It shouldn't shock us when we suddenly experience these things. So he's saying, first of all, right here, don't be shocked by it. It's something that we should expect. That doesn't mean that, oh, it's just so enjoyable to be abused and mistreated and persecuted, but, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. And he goes on, verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Right, to sort of paraphrase what he's saying here, certainly the response he's giving to them here is, is that of rejoicing, to rejoice in the face of persecution, but I kind of want to give us a sense of, of what Peter's talking about, what he has in mind here. And it's this, that as we face persecution and as we persevere through that, again, that's sort of, even if not explicitly stated here, it's assumed. He knows that's what's taking place, what the Christians he's writing to, he knows it's what they're already doing. And so when we face persecution and we faithfully bear up under it, we remain true to the Lord, we persevere in the faith through that persecution, that is wonderful evidence that demonstrates real, genuine, saving faith. And of course, in that true saving faith, that results in what? Everlasting life. And so the natural response that we can actually have, even if it seems counterintuitive, is to rejoice in that fact. The reality is that when persecution comes, all the Christians, sort of the posers, the fakers, right, whether they just sort of call themselves Christians, they get some form to fill out in this little demographics thing, and they check Christian, or maybe they even go to church, they go on Easter and Christmas or whatever, that, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, all those who, who maybe pose as Christians, and they're sort of present in churches all over the place. This is not sort of some new thing today, and, and it was a reality then in churches that there were those who sort of would claim to be Christians, but they don't really have true repentant faith in Christ. But, but the reality is when persecution comes, that's when you can tell, really, who are the real followers of Christ, who have real saving faith in him, and who are just sort of the fake Christians, the posers. Because when suddenly things get tough, the fake Christians, they're out the door in an instant. They, you know, it's sort of like, hey, I didn't sign up for this. I, I, I like things smooth and easy and whatnot. I'm not willing to, to suffer for Christ, for my Lord and Savior. You know, I'm all about me. I live for me. I, I'm my own God, in effect. I idolize myself. And, and so if it's not comfortable claiming to be a Christian and supposedly following Christ, I'm out the door. And so the, the fake Christians are out the door, they fall away when persecution comes. But, but those who have true, genuine, saving faith in Christ will persevere 
through that time of persecution. So he's saying, right, when you face persecution, you faithfully persevere, stand firm in the faith. That, that shows that your faith is real, is genuine, that you truly belong to the Lord. It gives you that assurance of genuine faith in Christ and that, therefore that assurance that you have everlasting life in store for you because you have real, genuine faith in Christ. And that's cause for rejoicing and celebrating in. And so we can rejoice, in fact, again, even if it seems strange, we think of persecution, we think of, oh, that's just so miserable. It makes me want to mourn and weep, not rejoice. But no, this persecution, as we persevere through it, shows us to have genuine faith, and we can rejoice in that assurance of genuine faith and therefore everlasting life, of course, as well. And so that's a response we're to have, rejoicing. And he goes on, if you were insulted because of the name of Christ, this is verse 14, if you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Right, and here he's sort of saying you should have a certain mindset. Oftentimes, we're, you know, we're insulted, we're belittled. And again, that's something that we certainly experience here in our country, even if we don't have experience like the most severe types of persecutions yet, it may come. Uh, but the being insulted, as he talks about here, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, that's a reality that, that Christians in America face. He says, your mindset shouldn't be just to sort of focus on the negative and like, oh, boo-hoo, poor me, I'm getting insulted, I'm getting mocked, this isn't pleasant, but sort of have a different frame of mind, a different mindset, and instead focus on, oh, it's not just like, oh, poor me, I'm being insulted because I'm a Christian, but rather uh, the positives of what we have as Christians, rather focus on the blessings that we have in Christ, not the negatives that come because we're Christians, we're persecuted, and that's so terrible, but focus on all the blessings that we have as Christians because uh, we belong to the Lord, right? And he, he specifically lists a, a blessing that we have in Christ. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Don't focus on the negative, focus on the positive, all those wonderful spiritual blessings you have in Christ. Specifically, he names here that blessing of the fact that, hey, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, right? And you could go on and on about all these blessings we have in Christ. We're forgiven, we're saved, we're reconciled to God, we have a right relationship with him. We're his children, his adopted children, right? We have just perfect joy and peace and wholeness in store for us uh, in eternity. It's just every blessing we have in him. We'll rise from the dead and receive these wondrous, glorious, resurrected bodies. You could just go on and on every blessing we have in Christ. And he's saying, focus on that. Focus on all those blessings you have in Christ. And, and again, the natural response as we focus on those blessings is just to rejoice in them, just to delight in them, not to focus on the few negatives that are happening because we're Christians. Oh, we're being mocked, we're being insulted, and focus on that and get down. But no, focus on all the positives, all the blessings you have as followers of Christ, and just rejoice in them. And he goes on, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, right? If, if, and this is sort of similar to the last point that we just made, that last response of sort of have a different mindset. Don't focus on the negative, focus on, on the positive, focus on all those blessings we have in Christ. Here he's saying sort of much the same thing, but sort of taking the next step. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Basically, if people are... are, are persecuting you, you're suffering, you're being mocked, you're being insulted, all sorts of other persecutions, hardships that are coming upon you because you're a Christian. He's saying your mindset should be just to praise and thank God for that very fact that you are a Christian. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian and oh, it's just so terrible because now I have to suffer these things. Say, 
oh, I'm a Christian, and, and that's wondrous and, and just such a great blessing, and I should just be praising and thanking God for that fact, that I bear that name, that I am a Christian, that I belong to the Lord, that I'm forgiven, that I'm saved, that I have everlasting life, that, that I'm a child of God. I should just be praising and thanking God for that fact rather than just sort of ho-hum, poor me, I'm suffering for Christ, this is so terrible. Again, don't focus on the negative, but focus on the positive. It's not just, oh, you're suffering because you're a Christian, but no, focus on the fact that we have all these blessings in Christ and thank and praise God for that fact. And then he goes on, verse 17 now. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and now he quotes here from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. He's quoting from the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament here. And he says, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And, and I'm going to sort of give a paraphrase of, of what he's saying here uh, in, these, the, this verse, in these verses, 17 and 18. Uh, what he has in mind, he's sort of thinking of the fact that, that ultimately there will be a day of judgment, that we will all stand before the Lord and be judged. And, and then he's, he's focusing on all of these sufferings, this persecution, those he's writing to. He, he's saying that, that all of this hardship, all these persecutions, they're sort of like the, the birth pains that come before that ultimate day of judgment that is to come. They're sort of uh, the beginnings of what will ultimately culminate in that day of judgment when we'll all stand before the Lord. And so focusing on these birth pains that are leading up to that day of judgment, he's saying it's starting with the church. You're experiencing these birth pains of the day of judgment first. It's coming upon you. It, it's not pleasant. It's not easy, these persecutions, this hardship. But he's saying, but if it's unpleasant and hard for you, just imagine, ultimately it will extend outside the church. It's not just going to fall upon you, but it will fall upon those outside the church as well, those who aren't Christians. And he's saying, if it's hard and tough for you, imagine what it's going to be like for them, immeasurably worse. And then he has not just in view as uh, 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 not just in view the the birth pains leading up to the the that day of judgment that is to come, but he also has that day of judgment that is to come in mind and sort of what's in store for an, an eternity for us. And again, it, it's that picture of for those who don't know Christ, for those outside the church, for those who don't have saving faith in Christ, sort of woe to them, it will not go well for them on that day. Not only will it not go well for them in the birth pains, it will be tough for them, tougher for them than for you. But when that day of judgment comes and they stand before the Lord, woe to them, it will not go well for them. There will be judgment and wrath. But of course, for those of us who are in Christ, who have saving faith in him, there will be forgiveness, salvation, everlasting life. And so that's what he's saying there in those verses. And then he goes on, verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will, and I want to mention here that he says that this is suffering according to God's will. We shouldn't think that this is sort of somehow outside of God's will and plan, like God doesn't have control over this situation, and that's why things are tough and bad for me, because like the devil's in charge, and he's persecuting the church. He's, the devil might be persecuting the church, Peter speaks to that in, in chapter 5, but it's only because God has allowed him to. God is sovereign over it all. He has allowed it to take place. And in fact, in the first verse we read, we get a little insight into why, right? We started this passage with, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. God has allowed this to happen, and this is a test, right? It's a test for Christians. Those who are, who are fake followers of Christ will fall away, but those who truly have saving faith in him will persevere. They will be shown to be true followers of the Lord. And so this is a test. Do you really belong to me? Do you really have saving faith in me? And so God is using this. He's allowing it to happen as a test. 
So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Right? Here's what we're to do. Again, speaking of our response, how we respond to, to respond to persecution, he says, just commit yourselves to the Lord and trust yourself to him. He's faithful. He's good. He's loving. He's sovereign overall. He's got it. Don't have the mindset of just sort of you're, you're worrying about everything and stressing. There's a lot of anxiety and panic over what's going to happen. All these people around the church sort of arrayed against the church and what's going to come of me. Just say, God's got it. He's in charge. He's, he's in charge of it all. He's sovereign over it all. Uh, he's good. He's loving. He's faithful. God, I'm just going to place myself in your hands and trust myself to you. You have got it. Do that, he's saying, and then continue to do good. Again, that's one of the themes we see running throughout this book, holy living. It's something Peter's concerned about, and therefore, since it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's something God is concerned about. So he's saying, just entrust yourselves to the Lord, just place yourself in his hands, and just keep on doing good. Keep on living that holy life that honors and glorifies God. And so here, I want to sort of recap a little bit this passage that we read, but I also want to read another one from the Gospel of Matthew. But so thus far, we've seen this sort of core in chapter 5 of Peter, this core fundamental response that we're to have to persecution. That's to stand firm in the faith, persevere in the faith to the very end, don't fall away. And then here in chapter 4, we get sort of all of the next steps, further ways in which we're to respond to, to persecution. How do we respond? We're, we're not to be surprised by it. We're, in fact, uh, we, we should be rejoicing in this persecution, rejoicing in the face of persecution, knowing that, that as we persevere through it, our faith is being shown and proven to be genuine and true. And so we can know, have that assurance of genuine faith, and that, that comes through that perseverance. Uh, in the face of persecution, we, our faith is shown true and genuine. We can rejoice in that fact. Then also that we're to focus on our, our blessings as Christians. Don't focus on the negative and the hardship you're facing, uh, this persecution, but rather focus on those spiritual blessings in Christ. And then, again, taking sort of the next step and praise and thank God for them. Praise and thank God that you are a Christian, that you do belong to him, and, and praise him and thank him for all those blessings you have in Christ. And then as he closed off this passage, we are to respond by just entrusting ourselves to the Lord, placing ourselves in his hands, and just keep on doing good, keep on living holy, upright lives. And now there's one more response. It's not like, oh, Peter just missed it here. He left one off. Uh, you know, there's another response we should have. Again, it's not like Peter's necessarily giving an all-exhaustive list of every response we should have, we could conceivably have and should have uh, to persecution. He's just sort of highlighting some that he wants to see them live out as they're facing persecution. But, but for our sake, I want to highlight another one. And this is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 44. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what he says. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's all too easy when you have enemies that are just sort of arrayed all around you, ganging up on you. Even for those of us who are Christians as the church, just sort of, it's too easy to look at the world around and, and view them as enemies, as opponents, and just hate them and oppose them in, in that sense. We should oppose the evil that they support and promote. We should stand against sin and evil. But the reality is, with regard to our enemies, with regard to those who hate us, with regard to those who persecute us, our response should be to love them, to love them and to pray for them. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus says. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For us as Christians, as we face persecution, whether it's in small ways, whether it's in big ways, our response should be to just keep on loving those who are persecuting us, keep on loving 
our enemies and to pray for them, to want the best for them, to be praying for them, pray that God would be working in their hearts and their minds and stirring them toward repentance and faith uh, and, and leading them into his kingdom. We should be praying for them and loving them and, and continuing in that rather than responding in like kind the way they're treating us. You want to hate us, we'll hate you in return. That shouldn't be our mindset, but we should love even though we're being hated. We should love and pray for them. And this is how we are to respond to persecution. And as I look at all of these ways in which we're to respond to persecution, again, persevering in the faith, don't be surprised by it, rejoice in the face of persecution, focus on our blessings as Christians, praise and thank God that you're a Christian, that you belong to him, have every spiritual blessing that is in Christ, and trust ourselves to the Lord, keep doing good, living holy lives, love and pray for those who persecute us. As I look at all of those, I would say that this is a recipe for two things in the face of persecution. It's a recipe for how we can honor God and glorify him as we're facing persecution as the church. But it's also a recipe for us to thrive as Christians in the midst of persecution. And so as we think about this, as we recognize the reality that persecution is, is present in our world, it's in fact all over the place and, all, and on the rise all across the globe, even if we have it pretty good here in the U.S. on the whole, it's intensifying, even if sort of in small ways and sort of a slow progression, it's growing, it's a reality. As we think about that, as we recognize that, that this is something we can expect to face as Christians, whether in small ways or in big ways, and as we prepare to respond to it in a faithful and biblical way and sort of follow this roadmap that we're, we're given here for how we're to respond to persecution, I want us to realize that as we faithfully live it out, we're going to be glorifying and honoring God in our lives. And again, it's also going to be that roadmap and recipe for us to thrive as Christians, as followers of the Lord in the midst of that time of persecution. And so I just want to challenge us to really live this out. Uh, whether you're facing persecution now, maybe in your workplaces, just it's your boss or somebody who just is always berating you and criticizing you for being a Christian. Maybe that's some persecution you face, or maybe it's someone in your family who's just always mocking you and belittling you. M maybe in your workplace, there is the threat of like, if I go out and I'm just like faithful to the Lord and I share the gospel with others, I could lose my job. But hey, I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to keep being a witness for Christ. And I may face that persecution of, of being fired and, and losing my job, but, but I'm going to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of it, no matter whatever the per persecution you may be facing now, or you may face down the road, just keep these responses in mind that we're called to have, have them at the forefront of your mind. But again, also sort of in the recesses of your mind as well as, as maybe at this point in time, you're not facing much persecution, but, but it, it can and likely will come. And so have it in your mind, be ready to respond as we're called to with that perseverance in the faith, not being surprised by the persecution, rejoicing in the face of it, focusing on our spiritual blessings in Christ, thanking God for them and praising him for them and trusting ourselves to the Lord. Keep on doing good and loving and praying for those who persecute us, for our enemies. And just do it knowing that as you do it, God's going to be honored and glorified in it. And you will thrive as a follower of Christ in the midst of that persecution. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, this is a reality for your church. It may not be the most pleasant reality, something that often we don't want to face. We like things, mankind, we like things simple and easy and comfortable to begin with. But I'd say in our culture in America, all the more so, we like our comforts. We like things easy. We don't like persecution. But we know it's a reality for the church. May we not be surprised by it. 
as we talked about. But may we respond in every way as we're called to with faithfulness, Lord. May we just stand firm in the faith to the very end, not falling away but remaining true to you. May we rejoice, Lord, in the face of persecution, knowing that as we persevere through that, our faith is shown to be genuine and real and true, and that is cause for rejoicing. That tested genuineness of our faith is something to rejoice in in the face of persecution. May we focus not on the negatives but on the positives, on the fact that we are yours, that we belong to you, that we have every wondrous, glorious, spiritual blessing in you. May we never lose sight of that. Have that at the forefront of our minds at all times. Whether we're experiencing persecution or not, may we not lose sight of that and just praise you and thank you for every bit of it. May we entrust ourselves to you. May we keep on doing good, just serving you day in and day out. Just place ourselves in your hands. Say, God, you've got it. And just move forward, plow forward, just being faithful to you, living godly, holy lives. And may we remember, as tough as it may be at times as we face persecution, may we keep on loving our persecutors and pray for them. And may you just be glorified and exalted and honored in every bit of it. And may we thrive as your people as we faithfully follow this recipe you have given to us for how we are to respond to persecution as your people, Lord. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.